Science fiction is considered to be a literary genre, but how about reconsidering its true nature? How about it is not a form of literature at all, but rather a social science? So instead of adventures involving space exploration, extraterrestrials, time travel, mutinous androids or cars that turn into robots, science fiction is really a political theory, a philosophy, an ideology, a way of seeing the world. Or, more precisely, a way of seeing a world that is not there. At least not yet. It is about seeing an alternative reality to this one. So science fiction is not fiction at all, but rather a liberating, progressive intelligence dedicated to changing the world, transforming our perceptions of existence and altering the future before we get there. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. Holy shit. Yeah, that's right, Caleb. You got it. Because if that test is passed, you are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods. The term science fiction is in fact quite old, first coined in 1851 by literary critic William Wilson when he published a little earnest book upon a great old subject. Wilson's little earnest book was forgotten almost as soon as it was published, but his old subject was poetry, and in his critique he fused verse with science, suggesting science may be, quote, interwoven with a pleasing story which may itself be poetical and true, thus circulating a knowledge of the poetry of science clothed in the garb of the poetry of life. In other words, science fiction is the fusion of fact or science with poetry or fiction. And if John Keats was correct in saying that beauty is truth and truth beauty, then perhaps Wilson was onto something when he surmised that if we managed to fuse art and science, we just might manage to unveil the mysteries of our existence. Here is Alex Garland, screenwriter and director of Ex Machina, taking part in the talks at Google series on March the 18th, 2015. Um, I had got involved with a long uh, running argument, a good natured argument, but still an argument with a neuroscientist friend of mine who comes from that very respectable position that exists within uh, theory of mind about humans, but also AI research, which basically says machines are never going to be conscious. There's something particular about human consciousness that hasn't been understood yet. And when we do understand it, we will see why machines are precluded from ever being sentient. And um, uh, I, I think on an instinctive level, I disagreed with him. And then we, we sort of argued over years. And, and mainly, this film comes out of that argument. Garland was all but 24 years old when he published his debut novel, The Beach. With his utopian quest selling over a million copies, Garland then switched his attention to writing screenplays. First in penning original scripts for Danny Boyle, 28 Days Later and Sunshine, before adapting Kazuo Ishiguro's Booker Prize-nominated dystopian tale Never Let Me Go, and then the 2080 comic strip Dread. A rookie judge on assessment is likely to be involved in armed combat. One five don't survive the first day. You may be required to carry out on-the-spot executions of convicted felons. Yes, sir. Incorrect sentencing is an automatic fail. Disobeying a direct order from your assessment officer is an automatic fail. Losing your primary weapon or having it taken from you is an automatic fail. Yes, sir. You ready, rookie? I am. Your assessment starts now. Released to critical acclaim in 2015, Ex Machina was Garland's first film as director. And although he received Oscar and BAFTA nominations for Best Original Screenplay, 
His premise does bear an uncanny resemblance to another story. Think about it. A lowly programmer at the world's largest search engine wins the opportunity to meet the genius behind the firm and hopefully contribute to the development of his future technologies. Which is not to accuse Garland of plagiarism, but simply to remind us of the narrative precedents working within his plot. Nathan Bateman, played by Oscar Isaac, has summoned Caleb Smith, played by Donald Gleeson, to his hideaway deep in the Alaskan hinterland to help him with the development of the world's first humanoid robot, Ava, played by Alicia Vikander. I'm pleased to meet you, Ava. I'm pleased to meet you too. I've never met anyone new before. Only Nathan. Then I guess we're both in quite a similar position. Haven't you met lots of new people before? None like you. However, we can go back further than Roald Dahl in the 1960s to find another similar story. To Elizabethan England and Shakespeare's The Tempest. There, an aged magician named Prospero is living out his days on a remote island with his only daughter Miranda and two servants, Caliban and Ariel. Despite his great knowledge and power, Prospero is very possessive and is so protective of his daughter that he never lets her off the island, let alone barely out of his sight. Into this highly controlled environment, Prospero arranges for a young man, Ferdinand, to marry Miranda, thereby guaranteeing the continuance of his aristocratic bloodline. Initially considered a comedy, and then a romance, The Tempest has undergone several close examinations, the most resonant of which claims that it is really an allegory for creativity and power. Prospero is a magician who conjures up a reality for his daughter by distorting the world around her. I have done nothing but in care of thee, of thee, my dear one, thee, my daughter, who art ignorant of what thou art, not knowing of whence I am, nor that I am more better than Prospero, master of this full poor cell, and thy no greater father. More to know did never meddle with my thoughts. Tis time I should inform thee further. Lend thy hand and pluck my magic garment from me. If we want, we can trace the idea of a humanoid robot as far back as ancient Greece. Then, Ovid penned his poem Metamorphoses, in which the sculptor Pygmalion was so impressed with the carving he had made of a woman that he fell in love with it. He then prayed to Aphrodite that he may find a woman of equal beauty. And behold, the goddess answered his plea and the statue came to life. That plot finds eerie resonance in a story penned some 19 centuries later by then 18-year-old poetess Mary Godwin. Enduring a chilly, rain-soaked summer on the shores of Lake Geneva with her then-lover and soon-to-be husband Percy Shelley, Godwin fevered up the nightmarish tale of Frankenstein. A doctor animates to life the stitched-together body parts of several corpses. And further echoes were surely noted some years later when, in 1883, Carlo Collodi wrote of a woodcarver who creates a puppet. Oh, Figaro, look, look, the wishing star. Starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might have the wish I make tonight. Figaro, you know what I wished? 
wished that my little Pinocchio might be a real boy. Although those stories are markedly different, it is curious that once each of the creations have become animated, they all soon take on a life and will of their own, by which we mean consciousness, or to use a term first coined in 1956 by American computer scientist John McCarthy, artificial intelligence. Here is neuroscientist, philosopher and author of Free Will, Sam Harris, expressing some of his concerns with the burgeoning technology. The concern is really that we will build machines that are so much more competent than we are that the slightest divergence between their goals and our own could destroy us. Just think about how we relate to ants. Okay, we don't hate them. We don't go out of our way to harm them. In fact, sometimes we take pains not to harm them. We just we step over them on the sidewalk. But whenever their presence seriously conflicts with one of our goals, let's say when constructing a building like this one, we annihilate them without a qualm. The concern is that we will one day build machines that, whether they're conscious or not, could treat us with similar disregard. What is curious about every technology we develop is the assumption that in creating it, we can control every aspect of it. Which puts me in mind of another Greek myth, Prometheus. Yes, the one that inspired Frankenstein. According to the legend, Prometheus stole fire from the gods and bestowed it upon the mortals. As punishment, Zeus then presented Prometheus's brother with a wife named Pandora. And then Zeus left a gift for her in the shape of a jar. Prometheus had warned Pandora to never accept any such gift from the king of Olympus. But nonetheless, she duly opened it and all manner of evils and miseries were unleashed upon the world. In other words, once we open something, we can no longer expect to control it. Which may explain why, in so many science fiction stories, the creator wishes to keep their creation inside the laboratory. So, how'd it go? What do you have to report? You saw how the day went, didn't you? I mean, I assume you're uh, watching on the CCTV. Sure, but I want to hear your take on it. Now, there, was, there was one interesting thing that happened with, with Ava today. Yeah? Yeah. She made a joke. Frequently in science fiction creation stories, the designer is male, and he assigns his creation female attributes. Which brings into play the notion of gender and sexual orientation. Not always, of course, but most often, when a cyborg has been assigned a masculine frame, its function places the story within action-adventure. I think, therefore I destroy. Detective. The room was security locked. No one came or went. You saw that yourself. Doesn't that mean this has to be suicide? Yep. Unless the killer's still in here. The opposite, of course, is I obey, therefore I protect. Robocop. Who is he? What is he? Where does he come from? He is OCP's newest soldier in their revolutionary crime management program. OCP spokesmen claim that the fearless machine has crooks on the run in old Detroit and sometimes both. Just think of the name James Cameron gave his 1984 classic, and then how he inverted that programming in the 1991 sequel. You're not here to kill me. I figured that part out for myself. So what's the deal? My mission is to protect you. Yeah? Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now, you reprogrammed me to be your protector here, 
in this time. However, when it comes to cyborgs with female frames, the settings are all too often sexualized. I don't think, therefore I fuck. Consider Hell in Metropolis, the cyborgs in The Stepford Wives, Galaxina in the movie of the same name, Rachel, Pris and Zora in Blade Runner, and Joy in the sequel. But in the HBO series Westworld, things are different from Maeve Millay. She thinks, therefore she rebels. You're just men. And I know men. You think I'm scared of death? I've done it a million times. I'm fucking great at it. How many times have you died? But that makes me wonder why so many robots have Caucasian features. Yes, gender and sexuality have long been deemed central to robot identities. But what of ethnicity? Maeve Millay is African-American. So does that change our regard for her? Remember, the word robot, Slavic in origin, means slave. Garland elegantly guides a story through all those and other similar plots. For example, Isaac Asimov's novels I, Robot and Bicentennial Man, neither of which were happily adapted to the screen. Then there is Donald Camel's potentially interesting, but ultimately silly, Demon Seed. Also, Masamune Shiro's seinen manga series Ghost in the Shell, and Steven Spielberg's complex and deceptively dark AI. What if the Blue Fairy isn't real at all, David? What if she's magic? The supernatural is the hidden web that unites the universe. Only Orga believe what cannot be seen or measured. It is that oddness that separates our species. Or what if the Blue Fairy is an electronic parasite that has arisen to haunt the minds of artificial intelligence? They hate us, you know. The humans, they'll stop at nothing. So, is science fiction a literary genre or a social science, political theory, a way of seeing the world? We can see various ideologies competing in ex machina. We have the love of technology as well as the fear of it. The tensions of free will against biological and technological determinism. Also, issues of identity and duality. Note all the glass reflections, mirrors, computer screens, photos and drawings. And then there is the very method of teaching the cyborg. And immediately that which is taught the cyborg to ensure it absorbs its creator's politics. But it is one thing to mix together so many themes. It is quite another to observe, learn and apply the language of cinema. Not ape great masters, but be your own director. Interestingly, Garland does not see himself as the film's sole designer, an overlord of Ex Machina's world. In keeping with the way he has woven so many allusions to other stories, Garland sees himself as part of a team. Just look at the crew credits. Production designer Mark Digby, who had, like Garland, previously worked on Dread and Never Let Me Go. Costume designer Sammy Sheldon Differ, who addressed the sci-fi pictures V for Vendetta and X-Men First Class. Sound designer Glenn Fremantle, who had just won an Oscar for Gravity. And then composers Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury, who, along with cinematographer Rob Hardy, would reunite with Garland on his next picture, Inhalation. Clearly then, collaboration is Garland's worldview, one of balance and harmony. 
Fittingly then, we will give him the last word, here at the BFI in 2014, being interviewed by Adam Rutherford. You know, most of what you guys just saw here is is, uh, presented by the team that one puts together with the producers you you work together and from my point of view my principal act of work is is writing is is writing a script and then it's about who else is coming on board and uh, becoming part of the film really and uh, yes I mean that's an enormous group of people initially what you do is have to raise money and and present an argument and then it's about uh, it, it's about the team that comes together to, to, to make this thing. 